Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. This week's Advent theme is joy. And Luke 2, 8 and 11 says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping their watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round her. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is Messiah, the Lord. Joy is a hard virtue to find in our lives and in our world. It is a fruit of the Spirit. It is something that only God can produce in us because it's not a natural part of our character. Happiness is a version of joy, good feelings that accompany a few positive trends in our circumstances. But joy is so much more. Joy is a spiritual optimism that believes our hearts should be lifted because we know the God who holds all things in his sovereign hand. Joy allows a Christian to suffer with, cons- with confidence that God has not abandoned them. Joy allows a martyr to die with hope and dignity, knowing that the presence of God is just around the corner. Joy allows faith to keep a smile. So when the miracle of an angelic appearance took place, joy was ignited Joy is the shepherd's candle because they heard the good news first, and the angel said it would be spread to all the people. Whenever we see or hear God's intervention in our lives and in our world, joy thrives. It reassures us of the reality and presence, and it reassures us of his control over our lives. It reassures us that we are never alone. It reassures us that we serve a living God. This Christmas season, in a time of uncertainty and fear, know that God of the universe is your God, and you are in his hands. Be joyful. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for the reminder of your intervention in our world as you broke into history to rescue us. You alone are the reason for joy as we navigate a broken world. It's your presence that gives us a reason for joy in the midst of pain. Fill us with your joy, a contagious joy that is a response to your commitment to each one of your children. We light the candle of joy today. Well, we're continuing in our series, Light of the World. I want to talk about something that is, has been a, a stumbling block for many people on their, on their path to potential faith in Jesus Christ, and yet it's one of the stories that we hold most dear as Christ followers talking about the virgin birth. In 1939, George Danzig enrolled as a graduate student studying statistics under Polish-born professor Jerzy Neyman. At the beginning of one class session, Dr. Neyman chalked two examples of famous unsolvable problems on the blackboard. George was late to class. He didn't know they were unsolvable. He mistakenly thought the two unsolvable problems was their homework assignment. So he transcribed them in his notebook and went to work. 
Eventually, George Danzig solved both of these problems that had never been solved before. And six weeks later, an ecstatic Dr. Naaman, his teacher, knocked on George's door to share the news. A bewildered George actually apologized, thinking the assignment was overdue. That's when Dr. Naaman informed George that he had solved two of statistics' unsolvable problems. The problem seemed to be a little harder than usual, George would later recall. Over the ensuing years, George Danzig served the Air Force, civilian head of the combat analysis branch, he earned a doctorate. He worked as a mathematical advisor to a defense department. He joined the faculty of Stanford University as professor of operations research and computer science. He received numerous awards during his distinguished career, the National Medal of Science in 1975. The tools that he developed to shape the way airlines schedule their flights, shipping companies deploy their trucks, oil companies run their refineries, and businesses manage their revenue projections. But the genesis of his genius can be traced back to those two problems scribbled on the chalkboard while he was a statistics student that could not be solved. In his own words, if someone had told me they were two famous unsolved problems, I probably wouldn't have even tried to solve them. And that's what I want to focus on. If somebody told them they were unsolvable, his brain wouldn't have gone there. He wouldn't have thought them possible. This was possible because his mind was not closed to the possibility. He hadn't been told yet that they couldn't be solved. When it comes to the miraculous, when it comes to many of the things that actually give us faith, in Jesus Christ, in the scriptures, miracles, stories of miracles, when it comes to that, we all have presuppositions, sort of deeply held beliefs that affect the way we interpret those kinds of claims in scriptures. So to some people, especially those of us who lived in the Western world, have been deeply influenced by the scientific method over the last number of decades, to some, the events of history must have natural material explanations. Now, even as a person who believes in the miraculous, I would agree that God has given us a world of order, a world of, of the laws of nature, and in general, I would say everything functions within that except the miraculous. But to some, the events of history must have natural explanations, and to these kinds of people, the world is a closed system of natural laws. Atheists would best identify with this sort of worldview, that you must be able to explain everything through natural causes, natural laws. To others, the supernatural, as a violation of natural laws, and this would be myself and many of you, I'm sure, the supernatural as a violation of those natural laws is the handwriting of God in history. I mean, we go throughout our week expecting gravity to work, right? We, we, we just expect natural laws to work. And when all of a sudden something violates those laws, we're open to the idea that God is interjecting himself into history and the way we see his fingerprints is because it's different than the ordinary. That is the theistic perspective. Well, back Jesus was of this view when he said to those around him, you know, you have a problem with what I'm saying? He said, just believe me because of the miracles. He made that point, that believing in him was gonna be easier because you just gotta look at what he could do because he violated the rules sort of of the universe that he put in place at creation. One of these miracles is the virgin birth. 
or to be technical, the virginal conception. To skeptics, it's the ultimate religious myth. It, it hurts us to skeptics. To believers, it is the absolute handwriting of God. To those who are sort of in between, that are open and undecided, I want to revisit for you and for everybody how compelling the evidence for this story actually is. Now what's interesting about this is theologians, pastors, don't actually agree about why the virgin birth is necessary. Did you know that? So we all, we're committed to it because the Bible teaches it and it's this miracle that's one of the foundations of our faith, but, but actually there's great debate about why the virgin birth was necessary. And actually the theology of the virgin birth is surprisingly, a surprisingly small topic in scripture. The rest of the apostles, after Matthew and Luke really outline what happened and a couple Old Testament passages point to it, they really don't get into the theology of it or we would know why it was necessary. So we have to guess a little bit as to why it was necessary. Some say it was simply the way that God chose to enter humanity. So you've got the seed of the woman, the woman's seed, but no human father, so the Holy Spirit sort of making sure that the, the egg is fertilized in some bizarre way that we can't understand, some mysterious way, and therefore you've got the woman's seed and the Spirit of God making it fertile, you've got the God-man. So some would say this is just the way that God chose to enter humanity. Some would argue, could have been different, didn't have to do that. Some say, this is particularly posi uh, a very popular view with women, some say it was to bypass the sin nature and that sin comes through the Father. <laughs> and all the women said, amen, yes. I happen to believe women have sin natures as well. I know it's not often a popular topic in the world, but I don't believe all men are evil and all women are innocent, but nonetheless. So this is a real theological debate, and it's called seminal headship versus federal headship. People who believe in federal headship believe that sin came to all human beings when Adam sinned, that he sort of represented us and he gave all of us a sin nature. Seminal headship, from the word semen, believes that men pass on the sin nature through the process of, uh, well, we don't need to get into those details. Anyway, so seminal headship versus federal headship. That is one other explanation of why the virgin birth worked. In other words, you eliminated the male in the process. So those are two major theories. I tend to believe in the first, because I don't want to throw men under the bus at that level. But either way, it's what God chose, it's what God predicted, and it's what God fulfilled. Now, I want to develop this today. I want to look at Matthew chapter 1, fairly familiar passage of Scripture. It's the first, uh, first chapter in the New Testament, so about three-quarters of the way back, if you want to grab the Bible in front of you. Matthew chapter 1 is on page 1, and you have a genealogy of Jesus, and then near the end of it, you've got this story. Now, I'm going to back up a little bit and show you what's going on here. Verse 16 I'm going to just kind of grab the back end of the genealogy that goes back to Abraham. Verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Interesting, it doesn't say the father of Jesus. Father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. In other, in other words, Mary, not Joseph. Very careful use of language. 
who's called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now here's where this formal pericope or story begins. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, again, making it very clear in the language, before they came together physically, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away discreetly. So he's going to divorce her quietly because he knows he had nothing to do with this. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who's been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, and here's the Old Testament prophecy seven centuries before this, behold, The virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So at least three different times, both by, four different times, both by the technical language used of the word virgin, as well as by descriptions that they hadn't come together, you know, he stayed apart from her physically, etc. Three or four or five different times in different ways, you've got even in this passage a declaration that Mary gave birth to Jesus while still a virgin. So I just want to walk through a few points here that go that start here and actually reach back into history. First, Joseph's dilemma, a pregnant betrothed. This passage is about Joseph. This passage is not about Mary because the genealogy is establishing Joseph as Jesus' legal father. So Matthew 1 contains the genealogy of Jesus through Joseph's lineage. It begins by explaining that Jesus is son of Abraham, so Jesus is Jewish, it establishes that. It establishes that Jesus is the son of David because back in 2 Samuel, there was a promise made to David that the Messiah would come from his household. And then you've got this really interesting couple of verses that is literally my favorite passage in the Bible, but I don't want to do it to you every year. But where Matthew inserts these names of four women, which are not typically in genealogies. They're the four bad girls of the Old Testament. They've all got a lot of history. They're Gentiles, and they're all in the line of Christ, which is just Matthew's way of sort of poking the religious elite and saying God has always used broken people, and he does this today as well. I love that passage. We'll preach it next year because I can't go two years without preaching it. So he's just making the point that Jesus is a friend of sinners and he always has been. He's used them even to get into the human family. And then, so you've got son of Abraham, son of David, friend of sinners, if you will, bad girls of the Bible, son of God. This is establishing his deity, how he got among us, his divinity. Now, Luke actually gives us a better picture of what happened with Mary. Luke gives us the story of the angel coming to Mary and, you know, saying to to Mary that you're going to conceive, you're going to have this Christ child, and Mary's like, how is this going to be? I'm a virgin. She recognizes the problem. Matthew is establishing Jesus' legal lineage through Joseph back to David and Abraham. Joseph is a necessary piece of the puzzle. If Joseph and Mary 
don't make it, this promise of a Messiah is at risk through the house of David. Joseph and Mary have to stay together. Not so that Jesus has somebody to help raise him, not so that it looks good. Joseph and Mary have to stay together to legitimize Jesus' historic claim through the line of Joseph to the Davidic throne. This has to work. So Mary has been approached by an angel. She carries this God-man, Jesus. Joseph has no idea. And in a conversation that the scriptures do not record that I would so love to have been a part of, Joseph is informed that Mary's pregnant and it's God. And he feels what any man would feel in that situation. Betrayed, cheated on, lied to, and furious. Mary hasn't been faithful. He's convinced of it. And and I would say 100% convinced of it. There are no virginal conceptions in history. Of course he's convinced of it. This isn't like 80-20, give her 20% chance she's telling the truth. 50-50. She's lying. So this is the typical Jewish relationship, the marriage process, and I just want to explain where Joseph and Mary are at. There's three stages to the marriage process in ancient Jewish culture. And I really wish to be biblical we could go back to this system. The first stage is engagement. And they didn't have, you know, christiantingle.com back then. There was no sort of social media to find your mate and, you know, flip through one after another. Engagement, and this was the perfect system because guess who chose the spouses for their children? Mom and dad, it was awesome. Feel the power. And the kids cooperated with it. It was the culture. They didn't know any better. It was wonderful. It was the perfect system. Mom and dad would, you know, maybe work with a professional matchmaker, and we would get together with some families. We'd talk about our little children who are just little preschoolers right now, and we'd sort of set up their futures. And it was awesome. The children never even had to meet because we knew what was best for them. The perfect world, order. And this could take place very early. Again, they might be in preschool, they might be in elementary school age, and we would pick out and arrange with other families that they would be together. Sometimes they probably knew each other, played together. Many times they did not. That was the first stage. Could happen very young. The second stage, and this is the key difference between ancient cultures and modern culture, it was called betrothal. Now eventually they're gonna meet, can't keep them apart forever. And if they met and they were unhappy with each other, if, if the girl didn't like the guy, if the guy didn't like the girl, if they felt like mom and dad you know, must have been you know, really, really uh, not thinking straight when they put them together, typically they, they could get out of it. I mean, I don't think parents would want to force on their children a marriage they didn't want. But if they, so if the couple was unhappy, it, it could end up uh, not taking place. But if they were okay with this, uh, they would be betrothed and they, they would start having some time together, which would be strictly monitored. And again, I love this system, strictly monitored time together. Think chaperone. 
At 12 to 14 for Mary, at maybe 17 to 19 for Joseph, a short ceremony was performed and they were betrothed. 12 to 14, early teenager, maybe for a female, late teenager for a male. They are now husband and wife, but without a sexual consummation in any way. They go to the betrothal, they go home with mom and dad. There's no honeymoon. There's no union. This is sort of marriage no man's land. They're legally married, but they're not together physically for about 12 months, actually. If during this period of time where they're legally married, but there's no physical relationship, this is, this is just almost funny. If Joseph dies during that time, Mary is classified by this technical legal phrase, a widow who is a virgin. That's the phrase. Think about that. It just kind of hurts your brain. A widow who is a virgin if Joseph dies. So they're going to live apart for 12 months. They're going to have no physical relationship, yet they're legally married. It's more than engagement. In fact, divorce is the only way out of betrothal, even though they're in this sexless relationship. At the end of that year, you have this formal marriage consummation. So for 12 months, the bride is supposed to be ready. And you know, if you're a Christian, this is sort of a, a picture of Jesus coming back for the church. We're supposed to be ready for him at any time. Comes out of this marriage culture. The bride is supposed to be ready for 12 months, so every day she doesn't know when the groom is coming to get her because he's planning a big party where he gathers his friends and some relatives and cousins. He's been preparing a home for her, just like Jesus is preparing a home for us. For this year, he, he's making a home for her. And then he gathers his friends. They come to her house. She's been ready for a year. They whisk her away back to his home where they celebrate for a week with all of the relatives. That's the part of this I don't really like, the honeymoon with all of the relatives. Little awkward, you know, looking at dad the next day, her dad, I mean, yeah. So anyway, that's the formal marriage consummation. It's during this betrothal this period where they're up out for a year, Mary becomes pregnant. Joseph hasn't laid a hand on her. Gabriel says, blessed are you among women. The reality is Mary was blessed and shamed because you couldn't explain it. And everyone knew they were in this betrothal state and eventually, Joseph had to know that she's pregnant because she's going to show. Now, there is a, a period of time here where after a few months of pregnancy, Mary goes to spend many months with Elizabeth, her cousin. And I'm assuming she told Joseph before this, and it might be when he sort of you know, rejected her at first. It's, it's hard to tell. The timing comes from two different passages. But he's furious. He has been faithful to her. He has been righteous. He hasn't touched her. And she has cheated and shamed him. So he had a choice. I can handle this in a very public, legal matter, which would literally be divorce, even though they've never been together. Or I can divorce her quietly. But Joseph is necessary to God's plan. Because Jesus is going to be Joseph's legal son, though not physical son, so God can't let this happen. So when he had considered this, putting her away secretly, 
angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Don't be afraid to bring her home with you. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She's not lying to you. She will bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus, which means Savior, for he'll save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. This isn't the first time we know about this. Isaiah had said, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is how it was gonna happen, the angel says. Joseph awoke from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife, so in a sense got to this third stage of marriage, but clarification, he didn't, didn't have sex with her. Kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. You know, not just a virginal conception, but kept her a virgin all the way through her pregnancy until she gave birth to a son. Then he called his name Jesus. Joseph is now convinced Mary had virtue. He would now stand by her. He literally bore shame with her over this child, but he would be Jesus' legal father, not physical father, but legal father. He committed to join in this process. He would raise God. He would raise God's son. But the shame never ended. I mean, this looks like a really happy story to us with a really, really happy ending. As Jesus was in his public ministry, People had never forgotten about this, and the Pharisees said to him at times, um, we are not illegitimate children. Remember that one, I think from the book of John? Yeah, this didn't get forgotten. Hometown knew. The proof of this story is kind of difficult. I mean, it's like our favorite story. I mean, Christmas Eve, we read the same story every year. I mean, it's, it's, it's a wonderful story. But the problem for us in a world of skepticism, it's sort of Mary's word against every natural law we can imagine. It's, it's Mary and Joseph's word against this. And, and yet, to help us with faith on this, it is accompanied by sort of an outpouring of the miraculous that surrounds this story. Zechariah also saw an angel, and Zechariah and Elizabeth gave birth to John the Baptist, who was the prophet to come just before the Messiah that the Old Testament also talked about. Shepherds saw angels. There was the star over Bethlehem that guided the shepherds and they guided the Magi from the east, from, from another ancient Persian empire. Most importantly, what if this is actually prophesied clearly before it takes place? And the angel makes that point. To bolster our faith, to actually bolster Joseph's faith, he's saying to Joseph, by the way, this shouldn't be a complete shocker to you. A copy of Isaiah, where we have this first prophecy, I shouldn't say the first prophecy, but we have the prophecy the angel spoke to, was found, that we have found it in modernity, I believe in the 40s or 50s of the last century, 1940s, 1950s. We found a copy of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls date to about 200 BC. Now we believe Isaiah was written about 700 BC, but a copy of Isaiah that dates about 200 BC has been found. It was clearly before Jesus was born. So you don't have the miracle and then they wrote about it afterwards just to make it look like a miracle. We've got a copy of Isaiah that dates to 200 BC where this prophecy was made. And I want to look at that. Our second point, Isaiah saw Mary seven centuries before. This isn't just Mary's word. 
This is based on the prophecy that the angel speaks to here. Now, this is the most well-known passage about the virgin birth. The virgin shall be a child, shall give bear a son, they'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So that's the passage that most of us know from the Old Testament. It's also the most controversial passage in the scriptures about this issue. Now it's very clear what Matthew 1 is claiming, what Luke 1 is claiming. The grammar is clear. They use words like in the Greek, parthenos, which always means virgin. That word is used. Uh, The syntax is clear. I I read through several situations where it's very clear that even apart from the word virgin, it's very clear that Joseph was not with her, they weren't together, there's other language used, so the syntax is clear, the way words are put together. The story is clear, You, you can't miss it, what's being claimed there, a virgin birth in grammar, a virgin birth by syntax, a virgin birth from the story. And it comes from Isaiah 7.14. Three primary views of Isaiah 7.14 that I want you to walk through with me. So, all right, so just stay with me. Keep your brain active. We're going to go to seminary here for a few moments, okay? So we're going to seminary, and uh, I'm Professor Paul. Never been called that before. All right. So there's three views here. One is a liberal view. One is a double fulfillment view, which is a conservative view, and the second is a double reference view. The liberal view is there's really no such thing as long-range prophecy. There's no prediction from God in the Old Testament of anything that comes true, that the books of the Bible written after the prophesied events, there were no prophecies. The books of the Bible are written later, therefore what looks like a prophecy isn't a prophecy. It's a way to get rid of the miraculous in the Old Testament. That's the liberal view. The double fulfillment view, and we're going to walk through it much more carefully, is saying that the promise made in Isaiah's day had both an immediate fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. It had a double fulfillment. And then there's the double reference view where it says Isaiah is actually referencing two separate events in Isaiah 7, some that happened near, some that happened far. Now stay with me. I know that probably didn't make a lot of sense, but we're gonna put the passage up there. It's gonna make sense, all right? You will be tested. But this is a big deal. This is a really big deal. Because if you can prove the virgin birth prophecy really from seven centuries before, I think we'd all say that really sort of buttresses our faith. I mean, it's a big deal. All right, the context. Isaiah 7 through 11, Isaiah 7 through 11 constitute a section in the book of Isaiah called the book of Emmanuel. So there are other references in those five chapters about God coming to earth, God with us. In fact, Emmanuel, the name Emmanuel, which means God with us, is mentioned three times in those five chapters. So it's kind of about Emmanuel coming to earth as one of its themes. And what's going on is seven centuries before Jesus was born, in in the country of Israel, the Assyrian kingdom, so they're sort of the bad guys from the north, the Assyrian kingdom is rising. It's going to be a world power, and it's threatening Israel. And Israel now just means the 10 tribes to the north and also Judah, the two tribes to the south, because there's been sort of a civil war uh, in, among the Israelites, and you've got Israel proper, 10 tribes, Judah, the tribe of Judah, and I believe the tribe of Benjamin, two tribes to the south. So you've got 10 and 2. They're separated. There's been a civil disagreement. So you've, but the Assyrians are the great danger. 
to both Israel and Judah. And what is threatened if Judah is threatened? What is threatened? Remember last week, the book of Esther? If Judah is threatened, you wipe out the house of David. If the house of David is wiped out, you can't have a Messiah. The house of David, the line of David is gonna give us the Messiah, that's been promised. So the house of David, the lineage of David, this great king from the past, is threatened. All right, so you've got Assyria rising, Israel and Judah are threatened among Judah, the house of David. Now what's going on is Israel to the north really doesn't like Judah to the south. They can't stand each other. And so those 10 tribes are kind of trying to create an alliance with Syria or Aram against us, Syria. They're creating an alliance against this great power. And they, they come together and they say, okay, Judah to the south. We've got 10 tribes here. We've got this small nation of Aram. We're hoping that you will join with us in an alliance against the Assyrian Empire. And Judah says, no, we're, we don't really want to be a part of that. We don't really like you guys. You don't play well with others, so we're just going to bow out. When they say that, that's exactly what they say if you look at the Hebrew. When they say that, Israel and Syria, to the north here, conspire together to take over Judah. Not Assyria, Israel and Aram, or ancient Syria, conspire together to take over Judah and depose, get rid of, the house of David. So they're going to take over the southern two tribes. They're going to get rid of the house of David. Now, if you're taking over a country and you don't want a future sort of challenge to the monarchy, what do you do? You kill them all. And it doesn't necessarily say that, but I'm guessing that's what would have been done. If you're going to be a new king and somebody's got an ancient claim to the throne, you just massacre their families, their wives, their children. You get rid of all of them so you don't have that problem in the future. And I think if you look at European history, you can see many kings were into that kind of genocide. That's what you naturally do. That puts God's plan for a savior at risk. If the house of David is wiped out, there's no Messiah. So Isaiah, he's the prophet in the middle of this kind of civil war. He's asked to go to Judah, which has a guy named King Ahaz on the throne. He's not really a great guy. He's not even really a good guy, but he is of the house of David. King Ahaz is on the throne, and, and Isaiah is told, I want you to go talk to Ahaz. We know he's not much of a believer. He's not much of an example, but talk to him and tell him that God is going to protect the house of David from this coup. And when you go with him, and this is in the passage, God tells him, I want you to take your young boy with you. So Isaiah, I want you to go, and I want you to take, it's this really long name for his kid, take your little boy with you, and his little boy is like just past being weaned, he's probably a preschooler. Take this boy with you. And it's huge that you remember that Isaiah is not there alone. We'll get back to that. He's there with his little buddy, little Isaiah, who was not called Isaiah. All right. Now, here's Isaiah 7, 10 to 16. All right, stay with me. The Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Not going to ask for a sign. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You're not asking for one. We're going to give you one. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, or God with us. Now, here's where this gets confusing. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So you look at that and you're like, what is that about? What is this honey and curds and all this stuff? All right, I agree, a little confusing. Now, leaving that prophecy up, three views. The liberal view would look at that and say, verse 14, a virgin? No, that word is the, is the Hebrew alma. That doesn't mean virgin. Just means young woman. So they would say there's no virgin birth prophesied. There's no supernatural prophecy here. Anything that looks like fulfilled prophecy is just authored after the events happen anyway. And how this young woman affects this is, you know, a young woman's going to have a baby, and while he's still young before he reaches an age of maturity, um, the two kingdoms that Ahaz fears are going to be uh, overtaken. They're going to fall. Now, that's, that's the liberal view. We don't believe that. Here's the double fulfillment view. Now, this would be a lot of Christians. Some of you probably believe this. In my opinion, wrongly, but give me a moment. The double fulfillment view, was that too harsh? I thought, maybe? Okay. Some of you probably believe this. I have believed this at times. But I think there is a better explanation. The double fulfillment view would say that this has a fulfillment in Isaiah's day and a fulfillment in the future. The fulfillment in Isaiah's day, it really couldn't be a virgin because virgins don't have babies, so it's not a virgin birth. So in Isaiah's day, a young woman will have a child in Isaiah's time. He's not going to be very old before Judah's enemies fall, which is stated at the end there. That's the double fulfillment view. And then in the future, there will be another fulfillment where this really will be technically a virgin. We'll give birth to a Messiah or Emmanuel, and then when you get to the New Testament, the angel is referencing this second or double fulfillment, which also means Isaiah probably wouldn't have understood this when he said it. He wouldn't have gotten it because he couldn't have seen that second fulfillment. And to me, that makes the prophecy a lot weaker if Isaiah wouldn't have understood it that way. Third view is a double reference view. And that view is that Isaiah is actually going back and forth in these verses between a conversation with the house of David and a conversation to Ahaz specifically. And here's the evidence for that. The Hebrew pronouns, which you can't tell. When you see the word you, if I say you, I could be talking to this dude in the second row, you, or I could be talking to you. Can't tell if it's singular or plural. That's what's going on here. You can't tell unless you actually read the Hebrew. The Hebrew in verse 11, 16, 17 is singular. He's talking to Ahaz alone, personally. When you get to verses 13 and 14, which is the big deal, he's talking plural to the house of David. He's looking to the future. The point is, the promise that we hold dear is to this broader audience. So when he's saying, you will, uh, you, the Lord himself will give you a sign, he's not talking to Ahaz, he's talking to the future house of David. There will be a virgin who will be with child and bear a son. God will come into the world, it will be Emmanuel. In other words, the house of David is not at risk of being wiped out. God is guaranteeing it. Some of these other verses, when you get to verse 15 and thereafter, it's back to Ahaz. Also, this view would say, as with the prior one, 
Alma does mean virgin. It appears eight times in the Old Testament. Every time it means virgin, unmarried woman in that culture. The Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew, translates Alma with the word Parthenos, which always, so when you have the New, uh, New Testament language of Greek translating the Old Testament so people in Jesus' day could read it, they put the word Parthenos in there, which always means virgin. And here's the key about this little kid who's gonna eat curds and honey and so on. That's Isaiah's boy. It's not talking about the product of the virgin. He's going back to Ahaz and he's saying, this little boy that Isaiah has with him before an age of understanding morals, in other words, within the next couple of years, you're gonna see those kingdoms that are threatening you fall, so don't be concerned. Two different children are talked about here in these verses. This makes the most sense, it's the clearest prophecy possible, and it fits the grammar perfectly, and there are a group of theologians who believe absolutely that's what's going on. And better than that, this looks back to another promise. Third, God predicted Mary after the first sin. Now we're running behind a little bit here. I didn't think this was gonna take as long as it has, so I'm gonna rush through this. Genesis 3.15 occurs right after the fall. And in it, it predicts a human savior. It, it predicts the battle between Satan and the savior. And it says Satan's gonna harm him. You know, you're gonna bruise his heel, but he's gonna bruise you on the head. It predicts this great end time battle between God and Satan. But it's the construction of two words that excite a lot of people. Her seed. The seed of the woman. Her seed. Some say that on the third page of scripture, the virgin birth is prophesied. Because saying her seed excludes the possibility of a human father. If it said his seed, a virgin birth could not take place. Because we're not going to have a human father. The, the Septuagint, again, the Greek translation of the Old Testament literally says this, her sperma, those are the words, her sperma. The word seed is in the neuter, not the masculine, but it results in a he in the next verse who's gonna be a male God-man. It is a carefully constructed grammatical opening to the virgin birth constructed by Moses when he wrote the Pentateuch. 1,400 years before Jesus. It's either an opening to the virgin birth or a flat-out declaration of it on the third page of Scripture. All right, we'll wrap up here. Mary Joseph and the God of the impossible. The virgin birth was not Mary's concoction. That's what I want you to understand here today. This isn't Mary and Joseph coming up with some fanciful little story like she's pregnant and she's gonna say it's God. We have far more testimony than that. We have these stories that go back to the dawn of creation and also 700 years before Jesus. The theological development of the virgin birth begins on page two or three of your Bible. That's pretty significant. Second, the incarnation is motivated by a rescuer's heart. Leith Anderson is a pretty well-known pastor in North America. He was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals uh, south of the border. I actually know him a little bit. He says, several years ago I was visiting Manila and was taken to the Manila garbage dump and saw something beyond belief. Tens of thousands of people make their homes on that dump site. They've constructed shacks out of the things other people have thrown away. They send their children out every morning to scavenge for food out of other people's garbage so they can have family meals. People have been born, grown up, 
on that garbage dump. They've had their families, their children, their shacks, their garbage to eat. They finished out their lives and died there without ever leaving that dump. Never even got to the rest of the city of Manila. Said it's astonishing. But he says foreigners also live on that dump. They're missionaries. Christians who've chosen to leave their own country and communicate the love of Jesus Christ to people who would never hear it otherwise. He says that's amazing. People would leave what we have to go and live on a garbage dump. He said it's amazing, but not as amazing as the journey from heaven to earth. The Son of God made that journey. He knew what he was doing. He knew where he was going. He knew what the sacrifice would be. He journeyed from heaven to earth on a mission to save the human race. The virgin birth is... It's not about Mary and Joseph. It's about what's behind it. It's Jesus coming into the human family. And he's living in the garbage dump, in a broken world. And he hasn't cleaned it up yet. And we often wonder how God can exist with the world as it is. But he's working on it. And someday, he'll make all things right. But the incarnation is motivated by a rescuer's heart. And finally, the incarnation opens the chapter, guaranteeing God's victory in a broken world. Freybach, writes, he says, I knew an old Glasgow professor named MacDonald who, along with a Scottish chaplain, had bailed out of an airplane during World War II behind German lines. They were put in a prison camp. Big fence separated the Americans from the British. The Germans made it next to impossible for those two sides to communicate. MacDonald was put in the American barracks, and the captain was housed with the Brits. Every day, the two men would meet at the fence and exchange a greeting. Unknown to the guards, the Americans had a little homemade radio and were able to get news from the outside, something more precious than food. Every day, MacDonald would take a headline or two to the fence and share it with the chaplain in the ancient Gaelic language, which the Germans didn't understand. One day, news came over the little radio that the German high command had surrendered and the war was over. MacDonald took the news to his friend and stood and watched him disappear into the British barracks. A moment later, a roar of celebration is coming from the Brits in their barracks in a prison camp. Life in that camp was transformed. Men walked around singing and shouting, waving at the guards, laughing at the dogs. When the German guards finally heard the news, three nights later, they fled into the dark, leaving the gates unlocked. The next morning, Brits and Americans walked out as free men. Yet they had truly been set free three days earlier by the news that the war was over. When Christ's kingdom is not fully achieved, well, Christ's kingdom is not fully achieved, we know the outcome of the battle. We too have been set free. I'm not sure where the music is coming from, but it feels like I'm giving you the end of a movie and the music is coming on. <laughs> Somebody's got a cell phone that's like not, not okay right now, but it kind of fit with the end of the story, the emotion, the cell phone music coming on. I move stage left, the worship team. All right, all right. Still working on that cell phone. All right, all right. All right, that's what happens when we give technology to people over 20. Yeah, yep. Could have been me. I leave my phone in my office for that very reason. All right. Christ's kingdom is not yet fully achieved, but we know the outcome. We have been set free. 
It's like we're living in that prison camp, but we've been set free. It was never about the baby. It's always about who the baby becomes and what the baby accomplishes. It's always about what Jesus does. The world is dark. I'll be the first one to admit it. I can't believe how dark it's becoming. 20 years ago, if you had asked me what could happen in a culture that's moving to the left in North America and in Europe, I could never imagine philosophically where we're at as a society. Couldn't have imagined it, couldn't have dreamt it up. Could see a few things coming, but I could not have imagined the confusion in society today on all kinds of issues. The world is dark, and living in it can be very dark and very difficult, especially if you really believe that we have the truth, and we see the truth barely reflected in the world around us. But the news has already gotten to the dark place, and that is that God wins. God wins. Doesn't look like it yet, but God wins. We win in the end, because we're on God's side. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this promise that begins on the second or third page of scripture and is reiterated many, many, many centuries later and then is fulfilled in this story that we know of as Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. It was always your plan to bring the God-man into the world to rescue us and to ultimately, ultimately make over this broken world. Thank you for that, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen.